Thank you for listening to Dream 10X Radio, where we interview people attempting to live extraordinary lives. Our twofold purpose is to both direct and inspire people bold enough to do the same. Dream 10X. Face your fears. Welcome to episode nine of the Dream 10X podcast. In this episode, we're talking about 10X adventure. We're talking about interplanetary travel, going to the moon, going to Mars, and what it takes food-wise to to get there. Anybody who's been on any kind of long-term adventure knows the importance of good-tasting adventure food. Without good-tasting Uh, nutritional food, long-term adventuring is just not possible. It it all hinges on how happy our stomachs are um, in in terms of how successful we are in achieving these 10x adventures, like going to the moon or going to to Mars. Um, Our next guest is helping to make these types of adventure foods a reality um, by making them more portable and palatable in uh, interstellar travel. She's a graduate of Purdue University where she studied plant biology. She got her doctorate from Arizona State University in molecular and cell biology. She is now a lecturer at the University of Canterbury in Christchurch, New Zealand. She's also a mentor and an adventurer herself. Please welcome Dr. Sarah Kessens. Welcome, Sarah. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks. Thank you. Um, thanks for dealing with all our technical glitches and everything. We're finally got things recording. Oh, so, good. We're literally across the ocean here. It's we're, we're doing well. 16 hour time difference. That's so hard to <laughs> arrange a podcast. <laughs> Love time zones. Yes. Yes. So it's been a really long time since you and I have last spoken and um, I've lost touch with you and I would love to find out what's going on in your life right now. Yeah, it's really, really good to get back in touch with you. Where are you? So I'm, yeah, I'm in Christchurch, New Zealand. Um, we're here, sort of the, the middle of the South Island in New Zealand. Um, and yeah, at, at the University of Canterbury here, here in Christchurch. Uh, how do you like it there? I've never been to New Zealand. Absolutely love it. Um, yeah, no, it's, uh, it's pretty much you couldn't design a better place to live, I don't reckon. Um, just really good people, really great community, um, really innovative university. And then you've got the mountains and the rivers and the lakes and the beaches of the South Island. Um, it's, it's pretty incredible down here. What, what brought you to there? Because last time I saw you was out in the Arizona desert. (laughs) Yes, exactly. Yeah. So I figured, you know, from, from one desert to another, right. Um, no, I really, so so there in Arizona, I fell in love with the mountains and the rivers and lakes. And so at the end of my PhD, I wanted to go out somewhere else that had mountains and rivers and lakes. And uh, and sort of looking around the world and different postdoc opportunities, um, landed on a couple opportunities here in New Zealand and, uh, and was really lucky to get a postdoc uh, here at the University of Canterbury. Um, so the intention was to stay for a two-year postdoc, and then the two-year postdoc turned into another postdoc. Uh, which turned into uh, I didn't want to leave, and so uh, they haven't kicked me out yet. Wow, that's great. So I understand from, just from listening to your TEDx talk and posts on LinkedIn that you're doing something with the aerospace program, and uh, I, maybe you were look like you were trying out for to be an astronaut or something at one point with NASA. <laughs> Can you tell us a little bit about that adventure? Yeah, yeah. So basically, my whole life has been one serendipitous adventure after another. Um, I'm really lucky in that regard that, you know, I've, I've got different things that come up that, that I've been fortunate enough to be able to say yes to things. Um, so sort of during, so I've always really been interested in, in space um, and sort of, you know, becoming an astronaut, but it, I never thought it was, uh, you know, a really a viable career. Um, so my dad was in the Marine Corps. And uh, so I grew up, you know, watching the the jets and the helicopters and things there in San Diego. Um, but uh, sort of fell in love with science um, as a kid and went on to graduate degrees. And so science became my passion. And I didn't think too much about the astronaut thing. 
Uh, until 2017, I was here in the middle of my second postdoc here in Christchurch. And uh, basically, I had a friend, um, a friend from the rowing team at Purdue that's working at the Kennedy Space Center, and she's an engineer there. And she had posted that NASA was looking for its next class of astronauts. And so I threw my name in the hat, um, figured, why not? You know, I'm eligible as far as, you know, the, the physical and the, um, the sort of technical requirements and, uh, and threw my name in the hat with 18,000 other people and ended up getting down to the, to the top 50. Um, wow. And that selection process sort of completely changed my perspective on what was possible with my own research. Huh. And so sort of pivoted a little bit with my, my research and um, gotten quite involved with, with aerospace here in, uh, in both at the University of Canterbury and, and New Zealand as a whole. That is so cool. What are some of the requirements to be an astronaut? What do they look for? Um, so the basic requirements are fairly simple. So we're actually going through the, uh, the process again now. Um, so the application just closed in March. Um, so technically it's, it's going right now. I think COVID's through a, a couple uh, wrenches in the plans. But, um, but the, the basic requirements for applying to become an astronaut, uh, this year the, the requirements have changed just a little bit. So it's a master's degree in a STEM field, so science, technology, mm -hmm. engineering, or math. Uh, it used to be a bachelor's degree, and now it's a master's degree. Um, you have to be a U.S. citizen and be able to have to, to pass a NASA physical. Uh, but beyond that, it's pretty open. And so, I mean, NASA is looking for a very diverse crew um, as far as the astronaut corps is concerned, so they sort of keep it as broad as they can. Um, so, you know, in order to apply, it's, uh, you know, it's pretty open. Uh, why are they looking for astronauts right now? Is it just for the International Space Station or are there other missions? So they're looking, well, sort of the, this last class. So the class of 2017 is the first of what they call the, uh, the Artemis generation. So um, obviously we had the Apollo program going to the moon. And the Artemis program is going back to the moon. So right now ah. we've got astronauts going to the space station, but they're planning missions back to the moon. So basically putting the first woman and the next man on the moon uh, is sort of the next missions that they're planning. Wow. And so are you, did you apply for that again? Yes, I have applied again. Oh, that's so awesome. <laughs> Any idea how big that, that pool is, of candidates is? Uh, so there, there were 12,000 people that applied this year. Wow. 12,000 and 18,000 yeah. last time. Correct. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> yeah. What was it like to make it to the top 50? Did you think you were going to get that high? Uh, no. Um, I mean, when you see the caliber of the other interviewees, you're like, how am I actually a part of this group? Because um, they're just some of the most amazing people. The whole process was just just so fun more than anything. Just getting to meet all these amazing people, both you know, yeah. in the astronaut corps and, and in the selection office, um, but really the other interviewees. I um, mean, these are top of their game engineers and fighter pilots and medical doctors um, and physicists and just just these incredible people. Um, yeah, so it was very humbling to be a part of that. Right. I can imagine. So uh, your skills uh, in biosynthetic engineering would apply equally apply to the moon as, as Mars, right? Correct. So it's basically trying to survive off of planet Earth. Um, and sort of where my skill set comes in is growing things. Um, so sort of life support systems. Um, if we're going to keep humans alive, uh, humans are some of the most complicated machines that we can put into space because um, they're, they're really difficult to keep alive um, and they've got to eat. And so sort of where I come in is, is growing food and, and pharmaceuticals and things um, using microbes. And uh, in order to make microbes taste good, they need some bioengineering. Okay. <laughs> I'm still trying to give a... <laughs> I, mean, I can explain that in further detail. Um, obviously... Yeah, we're, please we're not, do. I, I, yeah, I don't yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, if you could just yeah. like wave top it or something. So <laughs> Absolutely. Idiots like me so obviously, you know, we're, we're not going to have cows and chickens and apple trees and, and wheat fields up on, you know, on Mars or the moon. Um, those, those are fairly labor intensive and resource intensive organisms. Um, so we're going to need to grow things that are much simpler and uh, much easier to grow and that don't take that many resources to actually produce biomass 
from simple starting materials. Mm-hmm. And so um, the, the things that, that we'll be growing initially on Mars and on the moon and, and wherever we, we, are, uh, we are off planet habitating, um, the, the first things that we'll be growing are, are microorganisms. So things like cyanobacteria, so simple blue-green algae, sort of like the you know, pond scum sort of thing. Mm. Um, and filamentous fungi, which is sort of like the mold that grows on your bread. Um, these aren't the first things that you think of when you're like, you know, a tasty dinner. Um, but what we can do is we can bioengineer biosynthetic pathways to make them taste good. Um, so the flavors that are in different plants or the flavors that are in, you know, in, in muscle and uh, animals and things, um, we can actually bioengineer those biosynthetic pathways to make chemicals that taste good. Um, you know, the, the flavors in whether it's tomatoes or onions or, or you know, muscle, um, we can actually engineer those into microorganisms. And so that's part of the research that I'm doing right now. So is that through genetic manipulation? Uh, that is correct. Yes. Okay. Yeah. So is yeah. that bioengineering? Similar? Yeah. Okay. Okay. That's what bioengineering means. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so we're we're basically genetically modifying these microorganisms. Okay, so it's not so much to make things look like food that we're used to. It's more about making them palatable and taste more like things that we're used to. Is that correct? That's okay. yeah. One of the the biggest factors in uh, in food is is obviously flavor and texture. And so uh-huh. we'll work on the texture thing, but uh, flavors flavors the the first thing that we're working on. Very interesting. And so the reason this is important in interplanetary, surviving interplanetary interplanetary travel is because these microbes are smaller and more lightweight to transport, right? And they require far less energy to create a palatable food from. Um, what else? They, they still require oxygen and water to grow, to grow and, and make it, right? Yeah, yes, correct. And I mean, depending on whether we're talking about algae or, uh, or fungi. Um, so fungi also require some sort of a carbon source. The nice thing about algae is they can grow with carbon dioxide. So we're still talking about oxygen um, and, well, and carbon dioxide um, as sort of, sort of the starting materials and some, uh, some minerals and things. Um, but they, they can get their carbon from the carbon dioxide, whereas fungi are a little bit more, um, yeah, they, they require a carbon source, a sugar source. Um, but yeah, we're, we're starting to play around with a lot of things. That is, that is very cool. <laughs> Cindy, I, I, I don't know if you, had, you were saying something. I couldn't hear you. Oh, I just said that's really incredible. It's kind of like the Star Trek replicator. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's a lot of fun. Um, and it's, it's very much, you know, it's, it's very much science, but it's also art as well. You know, trying to, to understand, you know, what, what are the flavors that are, we're, look, we're looking for? You know, what's biologically, you know, easy to do um, and, and what's feasible and what's actually going to be eaten. Because um, obviously if you're making something and it doesn't actually taste good, um, your astronauts are still going to starve because they're not going to want to eat it. Um, so there's some very much, you know, sort of a, a culinary aspect to this as well. So it's been a lot of fun. That would totally change the ocean rowing too. Yeah, you know, having all your food <laughs> very lightweight right there right there with you. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. You want it to be as simple and tasty as possible. I love that about your research because I'm sure you have a lot of um, experience with expeditionary food. Yes. <laughs> and the importance of taste. <laughs> Quite a bit. Yeah. Yeah. We threw a lot of uh, energy bars over the side because we just could not stomach another protein bar. Yeah. They sink really fast. <laughs> Has that driven your research at all, or is this just did, did it just happen this way? Uh, I mean, it's it's partially serendipitous, um, yeah. but I definitely have that experience in the back of my mind. Obviously, I've never been, you know, to the International Space Station, and, and your taste buds differ when you're in microgravity. Um, oh, really? But I definitely have the experience, you know, with the expeditionary, um, you know, with with the ocean rowing, um, and understanding, you know, when when you're tired and you're stressed and you know, you just want something easy that's comforting. That definitely plays into the research a bit. Uh huh. And so you've been doing this research for the last eight years or so. Same. 
Um, no, so the so the the research on you know producing foods for Mars um, that's still very much in its infancy. Uh, we don't actually have funding for that project. That's um, that's my my little dream baby project ah. right now. Um, the the projects that pay the bills um, are more terrestrial based. So we're we're working on some agricultural and some pharmaceutical products using filamentous fungi. So basically developing high value compounds for use on Earth as uh, is we have funding for right now. Uh, and that's paying the bills. That's interesting. I was going to ask if um, you had a, an Earth, um, uh, an application on Earth. You know, if you can apply it to Mars and the moon, why not apply it to Earth as well? So Yeah, well, and everything that we're developing for Mars uh, can obviously be used on Earth as well. So if we make it taste good, you know, in theory, it'd be really cool if we had, you know, a little fermenter on your kitchen countertop. Um, and that's what you're making, you know, your steak with or your curry with or something like that. Um, it would be really cool if we could design something that people on Earth would want to eat as well. Um, and thinking about, you know, the circular economy and trying to create things as efficiently as possible. Um, there, there are definitely terrestrial applications to what we're doing for the, the food stuff. Um, but then, yeah, the, the research, the main research that I really do uh, on a day to day basis is working on um, on pharmaceutical and, and uh, agricultural products using filamentous fungi. Huh, okay. It's it's funny. We just talked to Jamie Byron in our last podcast who started a startup uh, called Grove Labs. And yeah. his company built aquaponic systems that you could put in your living room or your kitchen to, to basically grow food yeah, using That's aquaponics awesome. types of systems. So we didn't plan. Uh, we <laughs> I didn't even really understand what you were doing until just now. So it's really weird that, you know, we've got. Yeah, it, it absolutely flows on from that. Yeah. So talk a little bit about the cooker. Do you, you need some kind of hardware to, to make the, the food work? Uh, just a, a fermenting tank. I mean, that's okay. We, we are well away from actually developing this for space. We just we're trying to develop the bugs first. Um, but then, yes, eventually you'll need hardware uh, to be able to grow these things. Uh-huh. How far there's off there's a lot of companies that are working on that sort of stuff as well. Yeah. How far off do you think that is, that technology? Uh, for fermenting things or for the, the actual development of the organisms? Uh, yeah. <laughs> the, the food. The I mean, production of food from the microbes. Uh, I mean, you could do it right now. It just wouldn't taste very good. It, I mean, it depends how optimized you want to get them. Yeah. I mean, so if you just palatable... want to eat spirulina, then uh, then that's ready to go. But if you want to eat taste nice, then uh, that, that's a different thing. Yeah. How far off do you think that is? Uh, I mean, it's hard. <laughs> Science is a hard, <laughs> okay. hard to predict yeah, really okay. timelines and anything. Uh, uh, let me get some funding first and then I'll tell you. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Yeah. It all depends on the money. It, um, it, yeah. And that's an unfortunate truth of this game. Yeah. So this uh, next cohort for Artemis, can you tell us a little bit more about that program? Um, I mean, I am absolutely not an expert. I just know what I know from basically pouring over all of NASA's uh, um, social media and websites and things. Um, uh -huh. So yeah, so they're, they're developing systems uh, to, to go back to the moon. Um, the initial timeline was 2024. And I, uh, again, I'm not privy to the current schedules. I know COVID's sort of, uh, yeah, like I said, throwing a lot of spanners in the works there. Um, but yeah, so, so looking to put the first woman and the next man on the moon um, here sort of in the next decade. And so they're working on both hardware um, and, and rockets and landers um, to, to make that a reality right now. I think one of the mock-ups uh, for one of the landers just got got uh, delivered to Johnson Space Center. I know everybody's quite excited about that. That's really ambitious, 2024. Yeah, <laughs> well, I think, I think that was a political thing. Um, again, I'm not part of NASA, so I think I can say this. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But so you could be the first woman. Yeah. On the you know, 2024 20, coincides with a certain. Yeah. Yeah. Anyways. <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> but yes, it is ambitious, but it's, it's good to be ambitious. It's good to have, you know, timelines and goals. That's right. You're talking our language. You could be the first woman on the moon. 
I mean, that in theory, yeah. Um, more than likely, it's going to be somebody that's already in the astronaut corps. Uh, they've got no shortage of phenomenal female astronauts to choose from. Um, it's going to be really cool to, to see that. Um, I mean, I would love, absolutely love to be there, but uh, I don't know that the timeline would work for me. Um, but it's still going to be really exciting to, uh, to potentially know, you know, the first woman on, on the moon. That would be really cool. Or Mars. Yeah. From our perspective, too. <laughs> if it's you. <laughs> that would be amazing. Well, just to be part of that team would be phenomenal. It's one of the, I mean, I've been a lot involved with a lot of incredible teams in my lifetime. And, uh, and that's, yeah, the astronaut corps is probably one of the most inspiring teams that I've ever had a chance to, to at least even be on the periphery of. Um, uh -huh. They're pretty, pretty incredible people. So Artemis is trying to, uh, to colonize the moon. Is that, or are we just trying to go back again? I think we're just trying to go back. I mean, there's a lot of plans um, with, you know, Lunar Gateway, which is basically a space station that will orbit the moon. Um, and that's, you know, in, in the plans. And obviously plans get changed depending on budget changes, that sort of thing. Um, yeah. But basically looking to have people living outside of the low Earth orbit, which is where we have a space station right now. Okay. So they're looking at, at basically pushing the envelope further, um, having people live in you know, either in, in lunar orbit or potentially eventually on, you know, on a base on the moon um, mm -hmm. in preparation for, for looking to, to get to Mars. Um, but we definitely need more um, understanding of, you know, what, how the body copes outside of low Earth orbit. Yeah, I'm, I'm actually surprised we don't, haven't already colonized the moon after <laughs> all the stuff we did in the 60s and early 70s. Yeah, yeah. And it was, it's, yeah, and it totally makes sense to me that you would want to figure out how to colonize the moon first before you go to Mars. It seems like a logical progression. Yeah. <laughs> Rather well, than just yeah. trying to... <laughs> yes. I mean, just the, you know, the difference in radiation when you get out of low Earth orbit, um, you want to find out how the body copes, you know, with, you know, with three months around the moon before, you know, you're sending somebody on a, you know, a three-year journey to Mars. Right. Um, yeah, there's there's lots of steps, but it and yeah, I mean to think about you know we were last on the moon what you know around 50 years ago, um, and we haven't done a whole lot since. Um, it, yeah, and that comes down to to budgets and priorities and that sort of thing as well. But uh -huh. um, no time like the present, right? All right. So these are like so exciting. Really, it's very exciting. These are really intense, huge dreams. I mean, going to the moon, being the first woman on the moon. And building food in Mars where you can eat um, you can eat fungi that taste like cow. I mean, that's incredible. Yeah. And then obviously growing an ocean and all these other, and getting your PhD, because shoot, I know from experience as well, that's really intense. Um, how, <laughs> yeah. how do you visualize these, these really lofty, huge goals? Or do you visualize? How do you, how do you dream about them? Um. I, again, I've been really fortunate since I was a kid um, to have really supportive people around me and to basically, you know, for people around me to also support these these things. And so I, I read a lot and, you know, I, I interact with as many diverse people as I can. And, and once I sort of get something in my head, then it's really hard to get it out of my head. <laughs> um, <laughs> And I mean, that was, you know, with, with the Atlantic growing and with the PhD and with different things um, is once I sort of latch on to these dreams, um, I'm pretty stubborn <laughs> about making them a reality. Um, and yes, I mean, I've, like I said, I've, I've had the opportunity to dream big and then had the opportunity um, and the support to, to go out and make them realities, um, even when the going got tough. And so yeah, sort of, I mean, how do I go about that? That's a, that's a really good question. Um, I'm just like, like a, just really stubborn, I think more than anything and keeping that big picture in mind, even when the going gets tough. Um, and then you get into the nitty gritty details and, you know, every day is a challenge and every day is a new challenge. And sometimes you go backwards for days at a time, but keeping that big picture in mind, uh, is what really keeps me going. 
do you like visualize your end result? So you visualize yourself walking on the moon kind of thing, or do you um, just have it in the back of your head, the steps to get there? Or what's, what do you picture when you picture that end state? Yeah, no, picturing the, the end goal, the end goal. Um, again, and you can't do that, you know, for the nitty gritty when you're bogged down with the, the details, mm-hmm. but, you know, sort of the end of the day and you're taking stock of, you know, where, where you got to that day or that week or whatever. And, um, you know, again, a lot of times there's a lot of things that, <laughs> that go backwards. Um, but keeping that, you know, that, that footprint on the moon in the back of your head, um, at the end of the day is, is what keeps me going. Um, yeah, that definitely that, that visualization of a successful result, um, is what keeps me motivated. Have you had any really phenomenal failures that made you question or pivot? Lots. <laughs> and honestly, the, the failures, I think, have been the biggest motivation, uh, even more so than the successes, I think. Um, so obviously, the, the first Ocean Row was probably the first huge failure in my life. Up to that point, you know, I had been fairly successful in my head, and it was really interesting. Um, my, my teammate, Emily, mm-hmm. and I had lots of conversations about failure during the 2005 race as we're sitting on sea anchor and getting battered by storms. And I remember saying to her, I was like, well, I've never really failed in my life. And then she pointed out all the ways that I had failed because we knew each other <laughs> quite well by that point. Um, but it was, it was really eye-opening for me. You know, she, we would talk about, you know, I would talk about, you know, our national championships that we'd won. And she's like, well, what about, you know, in your sophomore year when you got fifth and it's like, oh, well, <laughs> yeah, I guess that was a failure. Um, but, but it was really eye-opening after, you know, this massive failure in 05. And it's like, well, okay, what do I do with my life now? You know, I sort of had this, this goal of, you know, you know we'd, we'd get a world record and then I'd come back and get married and get my PhD and get a Nobel Prize and everything would be sweet. And it's like, <laughs> actually, that's probably not how it works out. Um, and that, that first, you know, <laughs> sort of uh, lucky, lucky break for you know, for getting rescued there in 05 really changed my perspective on, on failure and that it wasn't the end. You know, if you're alive and you can dust yourself off, then, uh, then learn from it and keep going. Um, so there, there was that big failure. And then through the PhD, uh, obviously there's multiple failures along the way, but that sort of changed things and, and how you, you know, yeah, how, how you pivot to, to go in a different direction so that you are successful. Um, and then, then obviously for the, uh, the 2017 astronaut class, you know, I'd, being able to get to that top 50 was a pretty incredible thing. And then not getting there was a pretty big hit, even though I knew that the odds were still against me, you know, that, that was a, that was a tough one. And basically at the end of that process, I didn't have a job here. <laughs> so it was, um, it was starting all over again. And, wow. uh, and again, fortunately, um, was able to, you know, to get sort of a, a technician job, which was not the job that I wanted. Um, but I was fortunate to have, you know, a salary and be able to stay here at the University of Canterbury. And uh, I was sort of two years of building myself back up into the position that I have now. And now I've got some grant money and um, starting to build my group up. But there's, I mean, all these big failures, all these big setbacks um, have really, you know, sort of molded my perspective to where I am today and definitely made me um, you know, the, the researcher and the friend and, and, you know, the person that I am. Mm. So really it's so much resilience there and able to, to just keep moving forward. And that's really incredible. How do you balance your energy between your personal and professional life? I mean, accomplishing all these goals takes so much energy and dedication. It does. And I think it's really important to have that balance. And I, definitely don't do a good enough job of it. <laughs> you know, I think that's, that's one thing that, that a lot of us do struggle with is trying to find that balance. Um, but I can definitely tell when that balance is off. Um, and for me, you know, going to the mountains gives me energy, um, you know, being with my friends, playing team sports, those sort of things, um, give me my energy when there's lots of things professionally that are either challenging or just, you know, overwhelming. Um, and so, you know, trying to, to recognize in myself when, you know, when I, when I'm out of spoons, you know, when, when I have nothing left to give professionally and making sure that I get back out to the mountains, um, making sure that I, I try to find that balance, but it's, um, <laughs> not always easy. Yeah, I can imagine. So what's the, what's the 
but what's one advice that you would have for somebody who's trying to achieve big dreams to ba- to to maintain that balance? Um, I think probably the biggest thing for me is is find a good mentor. Uh, find somebody that's either going through that or has been in a similar position and can give you good advice. Um, and for me, I've had some phenomenal mentors, both, um, you know, through high school that, that pushed me into, um, you know, into, um, degree programs. And especially now, uh, as sort of a, a young investigator, early career investigator, I've found some really good mentors, um, who are, you know, at a much higher level academically and, uh, and have been able to, you know, to help me find that balance and where, you know, where other people have already figured it out, um, trying to learn from people that are, that are much wiser than myself. So do you have multiple mentors or do you really kind of focus on one at a time? Um, I have, I definitely have different mentors for different aspects of things. Um, so I've got, you know, some phenomenal, um, my, my postdoc advisor, uh, was just, I mean, she's a phenomenal academic, phenomenal scientist. Um, but, but she's, she's gotten that balance right. I think a lot of the time. Um, and, uh, and so she's, she's been quite a, um, a, a career mentor for me uh, as a whole. Um, but then I have other people here at the university um, that can help steer me, you know, towards different aspects of, of the research or the teaching or, or service sort of a thing as well. Um, so lots, lots of mentors really. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So kind of like your own personal board of directors. <laughs> yes, that's a good way to put it. Uh, very, very much so. Yes. <laughs> so, what makes you happy? Um, going after big dreams, I think, is a, a big thing. Is is having uh, a big goal in mind that that really keeps me happy and motivated and focused. Um, but more than anything, right now is uh, is helping other people uh, achieve their own big dreams. Um, and so as I, you know, sort of go into this, this academic, um, you know, career um, is, is as I have students and watching them develop their own big ideas. And so we're really lucky here in the, the School of Product Design where I'm uh, located. Um, we've got lots of students with their own big ideas, their own products that they want to develop and watching them develop their ideas and their big dreams and being in a position to help them. Uh, that just absolutely motivates me and just makes me really, really happy to see them uh, going after their own big dreams. Um, so being able to, to help develop people um, is a lot of fun. That's pretty that's, cool. Oh, go ahead, James. Uh, I was just going to say that's that's one of the reasons we started this podcast is so we could try to surround ourselves by other people doing great things. It sounds like in a in your university setting where you are, you're surrounded by these types of people day in and day out. And so you, it sounds like you derive a lot of energy from their, their, their big objectives. And so I just wanted to point that out that I yeah, totally, yeah, I totally I get what you're saying. It's, it's very energizing. Yeah, it is. It's all about culture, I think, you know, and, and having that culture of innovation and, you know, and understanding that it's not every day going to be, you know, happy and, and progressing things. Um, yeah. But having that culture of support around you and having other people with big ideas and big dreams, um, and, and helping support people to, to reach those big dreams is, is a really fun place to be. Yeah. Can you point to um, a family member or something in your childhood or, you know, a string of a culture in your childhood that kind of um, inculcated this, this pursuit of whatever you think you could achieve? I said Absolutely. that really poorly, but <laughs> no, no, no. Like, yeah. So what, what is it in, you know, how did I grow up that allowed yeah. me to, to become who I am today? Right. Um, again, I've been really lucky in a lot of respects uh, for, for my family and, and my early childhood education. Um, so first of all, I had parents that, that basically always um, encouraged me to explore and to be curious about the world. Um, so, uh, my mom was in science. Um, so she, she had several different sort of careers, um, but, but always interested in science and, uh, and always encouraging us to read and to, you know, to be curious about, about knowledge and education. Um, and my dad, uh, is very much an outdoorsman. Um, and so we grew up on 160 acres then there in Southern Indiana. Um, and so he was always encouraging me to, you know, to learn the different plants and, um, you know, go out and explore the woods and those sort of things. Wow. And I'll never forget the day 
when I was telling my dad about, you know, these species and he didn't actually know what the, the species were. And he realized, you know, his 12 year old daughter knew more about these medicinal plants than he did. And it was, it was a proud day for him. But at the same time, I think he was a little bit disappointed that, oh man, my, my kid knows more about these things than I do. <laughs> <laughs> but no, That's very, awesome. very supportive parents. Um, and, and my sister and I, uh, I have a younger sister, Emily, um, we were, we were always out exploring. And so we were always encouraged to explore and to, to, you know, find out about things. And then I was really lucky, um, when I was in middle school, uh, my, my teacher, Miss McElroy, uh, who was the science research teacher at the high school. Um, she saw that curiosity in me. And she she basically kept bugging me to to be in the science research program, and I was already a nerd anyways. I was in the band, and um, <laughs> you know, I, like I can't be more of a nerd and, and get into science fair. Um, but she kept <laughs> bugging me and kept bugging me, and eventually, uh, she won me over, saying that you know I could win win money in these science fair competitions. Like, all right, I'll give it a go. Um, and uh, and that literally changed my life, um, becoming part of the the science research program. Um, tiny little uh, Eastern High School in, in Pekin, Indiana. Um, we were the number one science research program in the state for several years really? running, and that's all credit due to Miss McElroy. Wow. Um, and so she really took that natural curiosity that I had and molded it into, you know, sort of understanding the scientific method and being professional and in, in presenting and those sort of things. Um, wow. And that set me on the path of of where I am today. Uh, that is so powerful. With, it was so incredibly powerful and. And again, this has been, you know, more than 20 years ago now. And I, I literally would not be here at my desk at University of Canterbury if it was not for her pushing me. Wow. Thank you for that. That is really beautiful. I love that. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, every time, I mean, Ms. McElroy is retired now, but um, I mean, every t- time I, every chance I get to to praise uh, her and her program, um, I'm, I'm more than happy to do that. She's She's pretty awesome. That's cool. So I feel like a little kid sitting at your feet um, asking you to tell the story again about the 2005 Atlantic rowing race that you were in. <laughs> Could you please tell that story again? Absolutely. No, it's, it's great. It's, it's kind of funny. Um, my friends who have heard the story dozens and dozens of times, um, it's always funny for me. I'm like, oh, somebody else can tell it. And then the things that they remember, I'm like, that's actually not how it worked. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's fine. Um, yeah, so so 2005. Um, so, I, so I was a rower at Purdue University um, and absolutely fell in love with the sport of just the, the mental and the, the physical challenge of it and the teamwork aspects of it. Um, and so naturally, um, you know, at the end of my, my collegiate rowing career, why not row across an ocean, right? Um, so sure. I was, yeah, <laughs> you know, that's, that's what everybody does. Right. <laughs> uh, no, so, uh, so I, yeah, so basically I had, I had read Deborah Beale's book, uh, rowing it alone. And that really inspired me to, hmm. you know, to, to pursue this adventure. And, uh, and again, as a, a naive sophomore at Purdue, um, looked it up and found out the next race was going to be there in, in, uh, 2005. And, uh, and so, basically started researching it more and decided that's what I wanted to do. And again, these, these big dreams of mine, I thought, why not? Why, you know, if anyone can do it, I can do it. And uh, of course I figured everybody would also want to do it. Um, That was not true. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) um, But there was one woman there uh, on the Purdue rowing team that also thought it was a cool idea. Um, So Emily Cole, uh, she and I had been competitors on the rowing team. um, But the fact that she wanted to do it with me, I was like, all right, well, we can, we can be friends. We don't have to be competitors. So yeah, so we signed up for the, the Woodville events, um, Atlantic rowing race, which was going to be run at the end of 2005. And at the time that was going to be the fourth race of its kind. So the first race was in 97 and then 2001, 2003 and 2005 was going to be the fourth race. Um, the previous three races went off pretty much without a hitch. Um, so it's a fully self-supported, um, rowing race across 3,000 miles of the Atlantic Ocean um, from the Canary Islands to Antigua. And uh, yeah, so the first three races, the worst thing to happen to people is, you know, a water maker breaks down or they break an oar and, and you get, have to get supported by the support yacht, but not, not you know, critical failures. Uh, 2005 was a little bit different of a race. Um, so prior to the start, um, 
the Canary Islands had their first tropical storm in over 15 years. Um, at, you know, our training down in Florida, we went through Hurricane uh, Katrina. Uh, fortunately, we were on land when it came across the uh, came across Florida. But yeah, so there's lots of lots of storms there in 2005, which mm. should have been a um, a bit of foreshadowing, foreshadowing as to what yeah. would come. Yeah, but so we, the race was delayed a couple of days. Um, because of the tropical storm there in the Canaries. But then we started off and, you know, record-breaking weather. We got away and, um, yeah, we, we got away and it was, a, it was a good start to the race. And then sort of a couple weeks in, um, there was a Hurricane Epsilon, which was several hundred miles away, but it was pushing, you know, some tropical depressions. And so we sat on sea anchor for a couple of days, the first couple of weeks, and, and that went away. And then we kept going, um, went through uh, Christmas and New Year's, and then basically after New Year's, um, it was sort of several weeks of bad weather that just never really let up. Uh, so it was a tropical storm Zeta that was about 200 miles to the north of us, just push, pushing all sorts of tropical depressions. So for about two weeks there, um, we never had waves under about, you know, 30 feet and, oh. uh, and winds under about, you know, 30 knots. Um, and I, you know, <laughs> being in New Zealand now, I... I go back from metric to imperial and sometimes I th say 30 meters and it's definitely not 30 meters. <laughs> it's just mm -hmm. 30 feet. Uh, but, but some pretty big waves and, and some pretty uh, significant winds there for the mm -hmm. last two weeks um, leading up to uh, January 15th when uh, it got pretty, pretty bad weather and we were sitting on sea anchor. And uh, so we, we were sitting on sea anchor through the night and through the next day. And uh, at about four o'clock that afternoon, we got hit in our port side um, flipped upside down, 1,400 miles from the nearest dry land, upside down in 30-foot waves. Mm. Um, yeah, so <laughs> as I said, I, could, I mean, I could tell it the two-hour story, but but for uh, the sake of brevity here, uh, basically we spent 16 and a half hours on the top of the upturned hole in uh, in 30-foot waves uh, with nothing but but an EPIR, so our emergency beacon, um, which has a little bit of a strobe light on it. And, uh, you know, the battery is working, but you really don't know if anybody's headed your way. And yeah. so for 16 and a half hours, uh, sitting on the top of the upturned hole, not quite sure, um, you know, what was, was going to happen, um, through the night, through the next morning. And, uh, and yeah, about 14 hours in, we, we saw a light on the horizon, um, which we hadn't seen a ship for two weeks. And so that was a pretty, pretty good thing until the lights went away. And then for half an hour, we weren't quite sure what was going to happen. Um, just out there in the dark. Um, and yeah, it was pretty low. So again, Emily and I were, were quite positive people, um, you know, trying to, to sing songs and tell jokes and keep morale up. But that half an hour after we had seen some lights and then the lights went away and then we weren't quite sure if anybody was coming after us. We're, we're pretty, uh, difficult time. Uh, pretty, pretty low spot in the journey. Um, but, but spoiler alert, we, we survived. Um, and so the, the ship eventually came back. Um, we had a plane, a U.S. Coast Guard plane, a C-130 that, that went over the top of us and dropped an orange flare. And, and at that point we knew we were in the middle of a rescue mission. And so the, the ship that came towards us um, was a, it looked like a pirate ship. So a, a British tall ship called Stavros mm. Nearcoats. Um, and Captain Darren Nags was only 35 years old at the time. And, um, he can, he can pick up women anywhere. Um, so he, he picked us up out of the ocean, um, brought us on board and, uh, and we spent 11 days learning how to sail a brig. Um, but yeah, not, not quite the adventure that we were planning. You know, we were two pretty gung ho, um, you know, American kids that were, were going after our dreams and going after a world record. It didn't quite work out for us the first time around. Mm. But you had the peace of mind to grab an EPIRB before you exited the boat to go sit on the hole. Correct. Yeah. So yeah, and the, that the saved your life. Absolutely. We would not be here if it was not for our EPIRB, um, which mm. was kindly donated by uh, by Boat US, um, which was one of our sponsors. And we would not be here without them and our ACR EPIRB. That's wow. we are we are here talking to you today because of the EPIRB. Yeah. And why did the um, the sailing vessel go away for a few for about thirty minutes or so away from you that night? Correct. So they're actually doing what we call a sector search. Oh, okay. um, and so at the time, uh, it's a four hundred six EPIRB, 
Um, at the time, you know, this was back, you know, t- 2005, uh, it did not have a GPS unit on it. So it was just a radio signal. Oh. And so obviously the radio signal gets stronger the closer you are to it. Um, but because it didn't have an exact GPS point, uh, the, the ship was doing what they called a sector search. So they would go three miles in one direction, a mile over, and then three miles back in that direction, basically trying to to pinpoint exactly where the radio signal is coming from. And so when we saw them coming towards us, that was the the part of the sector search where they were headed towards us. And then obviously then they're going away from us, uh, trying to to get that exact radio signal. Um, wow. So when they were going away from us, obviously we, we could not see them, um, but they found us again. That's amazing. And so you, you mentioned that you guys kept your spirits up by telling jokes or whatever, but that doesn't, I don't think really, expresses the depth of what was going through you at that time I, I can imagine like i would be just in the depth of despair at that at that point like thinking that this could be it i mean it wasn't yes i mean yes there are absolutely these big big emotions um but we weren't gonna let ourselves get into that despair because as soon as you let yourself get into that despair then it's over right. um and again we're we're two really stubborn people and we're like is this all you got you know it's like we're not done yet um we don't want to be done yet um eternal optimism that's great and well you you have to i mean i don't think you really have a choice i mean you can give up and then you know you just you drift off and then that's it but so long as you're still alive there's still a chance and so long as you've got your optimism you still got a chance um, and so in, until it's that very second that you're gone, I think you gotta, you gotta have hope. You gotta, you gotta keep going. Yeah. That is so powerful. So, but you didn't even quit then two years later, uh, you'd went and did it again. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah. Again, we're really stubborn people. Um, and so we knew we wanted to go again. So it's, it's interesting if you listen to our interviews from the tall ship, we basically knew, you know, after even after, you know, a couple hours after we got rescued that we wanted to do it again. Um, we didn't voice that up to our parents too much. Um, but again, this, is, this has been our dream. And basically, you know, we weren't going to go through the rest of our lives having just given up on this big dream. Uh, we are alive. And again, by the very nature of, of having the opportunity to be alive, we wanted to have that opportunity to go out there again. And so... Uh, we actually got the boat back. Um, it was a, quite a bit of a journey to get the boat back, but it was found a couple months later down in Desrod in the French West Indies. And, uh, and so we got the boat back and we were fixing the fire up again uh, to go in the 2009 race. So we knew it was going to take quite a bit of money uh, to, to get everything back up and running. And so two months prior to the 07 race, we got a call from Simon Chalk, who's the race organizer, saying that there was a force boat that was ready to go and if we wanted it, basically, we would just have to raise money for the charity that owned the boat. And uh, and then we could have use of the boat. And we were thinking, you know, well, either another two years of fixing the boat up and trying to earn money or we could go now. And so I was, to be honest, I was a little bit hesitant because I was in the middle of my Ph.D. and I had quite a bit going on at the time. Wow. Um, but Emily, you know, had, I think she was the sort of the the smarter of the two she's like you know this is we're never going to get this opportunity again mm. um and we could find two other people to do it and so we recruited uh tara remington and joe davies who were the other two women that didn't finish in 05 uh we came back as team unfinished business and uh and had an incredible race in 2007 and so the uh the women's force record uh prior to 2007 was 68 days and we came across the line in 51 wow and I love how you took the uh, UN off of the, the, the boat name to make it <laughs> yes. finished business. Yeah, we became finished business. Yeah. Yeah. Joe, basically, that. as soon as we got in, um, that was one of the first things that we did. What an incredible story. It's, yeah, I'm real lucky. That's for sure. So where do you want to be in 10 years after all of this? Oh, you know, a trip to Mars would be all right. (laughs) (laughs) Um, No, in all seriousness, you know, I think about my career and I think about, you know, the people that have inspired me and the things that I'd like to do. Um, 
I mean, if if I can continue my my research and my teaching and my mentoring here at Canterbury, um, I think in ten years' time, if I can if I can have students graduated that are going on and living their big dreams and and going after their big projects, um, I think you know the students will be hopefully my legacy. That's that would be the the biggest thing for me is in ten years to have a cohort of of students that are going on and and doing big things in their own research. Um, I would love to to have some research up in space. So that's a big thing that I'm working on right now is some some satellites and uh, and technology to get biological experiments in satellites. Um, so that's been really fun. Um, but yeah, in 10 years, I mean, if I could have some more adventures under my belt and some really good research going, I'll be pretty happy. Mm. That's great. Or, or be um, an astronaut, but that's that's not up to me. Yeah, that's what I was going to ask you. When do you think <laughs> the uh, when is the Artemis? When are you going to find out about the the Artemis stuff? Uh, I mean, the, in theory, the selection process is going now. Um, the the process, at least according to the selection timeline that NASA has up online, um, hasn't changed, but it's more than likely going to be delayed because of COVID. Um, yeah. Again, that's that's not an official thing. I just. I mean, in theory, we would know by uh, by June of 2021, but that's probably going to be pushed back a bit. Well, keep us keep us posted. We'd love to to track Absolutely. you. Absolutely, we'll do. <laughs> and best <laughs> of luck. Now we're really pushing for you. Got to do it. <laughs> well, that's that's really what was the most fun part of the uh, the 2017 selection process was just bringing the community in with me, um, uh, and to have basically the whole of New Zealand backing me. Uh, was a pretty incredible feeling and you know to being able to to go and talk to these elementary schools and have little kids you know wanting to be the second Kiwi astronaut it's just it's really cool to be able to inspire people to go after their own big dreams whatever they are Um, and again to to talk about failures and talking about resilience and not giving up Um, and to have that community behind you is a really special thing. I love that. And you've been a great inspiration for me over the years uh, with the whole ocean rowing thing. And I really appreciate that. And, and I've loved talking to you and hearing about what you're up to these days. And I wish Same you the best luck. <laughs> and definitely we got to keep in touch with you. Absolutely. I, it's really cool what you guys are doing. I'm really enjoying all the, the stories that you're you're putting out there as well. This is really, really cool. Thank you. Cindy, you got anything, any other questions? No, I'm ready to go row an ocean again. Thank you, Sarah. <laughs> Brilliant. I love it. I love it. <laughs> well, Sarah, thank you so much for your time. It's been a real pleasure and a real honor. Thank you both. I really appreciate it. We look forward to talking to you again soon. Thank you.